This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears, Amanda here, and on today's episode, I'm writing solo, for no particular reason other than just to try something new for a case overview. And while we haven't done an episode answering questions or responding to listeners for a while, I want to assure you all that we see you, we hear you, we read every email and every single comment, and we appreciate them all. We also see all of your suggestions too. Recently, we asked our fans on our Facebook page about cases they wanted us to cover. So thank you, Allison, for bringing this case to our attention. Allison requested that we cover a case from her hometown in Madison, Connecticut. She stated that it haunts her. It's a brutal murder that occurred 31 years ago. I think unsolved crimes close to home could haunt all of us. They make us realize that it really could happen anywhere, small town or not. I personally am haunted by an Israel Keys case that occurred in the town where I grew up. It never really leaves you. So today, we're going to cover the unsolved murder and cold case of Linda Ann Rayner. She was just 43 when she was murdered on June 26th, 1992, in Madison, Connecticut. But before we cover what happened to Linda, let's learn about her. 
And to do that, we need to start at the beginning. Linda's parents, Charles and Mary Rayner, met on the picket line at a strike at the Pratt Reed factory in Deep River, Connecticut in 1947. They married the following year and settled into a beautiful home in Deep River, Connecticut, where they resided for the rest of their nearly 74 years of marriage. The following year, in 1949, they welcomed their first daughter, Linda. She was the oldest of eight children born to Charles and Mary. Linda had four brothers and three sisters. Linda went to the University of Connecticut after graduating from Valley Regional High School in Deep River in 1967. She taught English in Windsor and Rocky Hill schools for about five years, while also working on a master's degree at Wesleyan University in Middletown. Linda moved to California around 1975 to initially start a carpentry business, and once there, she soon became active in social justice issues and volunteerism. She met her husband, Larry Ferlazzo, in an anti-war group in San Jose, California. Around 1981, they moved to Santa Rosa and started a Catholic worker mobile soup kitchen where they served sandwiches from the back of their Volkswagen van. They opened their homes to homeless families and soon became an integral part of the fast-growing city. Moving on in her career, Linda became the director of a rural foods program where she distributed surplus foods from stores, bakeries, and farms to migrant workers at the fields and farms within Sonoma County, a rural area surrounding Santa Rosa. From there, Linda went to work as coordinator of bereavement programs and volunteer programs at a hospice. It was there that she touched the lives of hundreds of families dealing with death. It was clear that Linda really had a gift. While leading a support group for people who had lost partners to AIDS, she helped volunteers come to grips with their fears and deal with their grief. Colleagues said that Linda had the ability to come into a room and make people more comfortable and aware of others. Linda helped others because she believed, that's why we're here. It's how you come alive. Linda dedicated her life to feeding the hungry, counseling the bereaved, counseling those with AIDS, and counseling hospice patients and family. She was a giving, selfless, and spiritual woman. She was loved fiercely by her large family and all that knew her. So what happened to her? Linda arrived in Connecticut on Wednesday, June 24, 1992, to visit with family and friends. She was staying with a longtime friend, Charlotte. On Friday, June 26th, after lunch, Linda borrowed her parents' car, a 1989 blue Honda Accord, and she set off on a solitary voyage to Hammonasset State Park to go for a walk. It sounded like from the articles that both her brother and friend knew she was headed there for a walk. They just didn't know exactly where in the park she would be walking. Linda was always surrounded by people, her family explained, and really enjoyed walks alone. 
I get this personally. I do this as well. I'm extremely spiritual too. And it helps to keep me grounded. It helps me to think and reflect. That day, Linda, who had short brown hair and brown eyes, was wearing a reddish-orange tube top, a yellow pullover, black shorts, and white sneakers. As Linda arrived at the park, she parked on the far east side to take a walk in a section of the park that many don't know about, but Linda did. It was a familiar spot from her childhood, called Meg's Point. Fishermen knew of this spot as a perfect place to cast for sea bass. So as she followed a path through salt marshes to a spit of land that pokes out of Hamanasset like a finger, she arrived at her destination. It's a rocky section of beach. The way the articles describe this location, it sounded like a secluded and quiet place, perfect to sit and watch the ocean. Linda was supposed to pick up her parents where they worked in Chester at 4.30 p.m. 4.30 came and went, and she never showed. The family searched the park late Friday, but did not go far enough east to find the car. Linda's father, Charles, was quoted in saying, When they didn't find her, police were alerted late Friday night, and they closed the eastern end of the park for half a day Saturday, while searching for her and for clues. Linda's body was found on the rocks at Meg's Point early Saturday, June 27th, by State Department of Environmental Protection patrol officers. The body was fully clothed, and there was no evidence of a sexual assault or robbery, the state police were quoted in saying. Linda's parents' car was found parked a half mile away at the park's nature center. Linda's death was ruled a homicide Sunday afternoon, June 28th, after an autopsy ruled the cause of death to be blunt trauma to the head and neck. The police are quoted in saying that the injuries to Linda were too severe to have been from a fall and could have been caused by a rock, a tree limb, or another blunt object. Unfortunately, hours after Linda was savagely beaten, torrential rains began to fall. Footprints, strands of hair, and Rainer's blood were all washed away. What little evidence police were able to collect from the crime scene has been analyzed by the state police forensic laboratory and the FBI. But those tests were unable to establish a DNA link between Linda and any suspected killer. And because so little evidence exists, further forensic tests are not possible. So to summarize thus far, the police had few leads, no suspect, and no motive. As the large family gathered in Connecticut over the devastating news, not a single person could think of anyone that would want to hurt Linda. Again, absolutely no motive. It's unfortunate that the weather washed away so much evidence. Even Linda's sister was quoted in saying, there's no anger at the system and there's nothing that they can do. The rain washed away the evidence. You can't get mad at the rain. Police do believe that they know who the killer is, but they don't have enough evidence to obtain an arrest warrant. 
The police did say that they will make an arrest when the silence protecting the killer is broken. Investigators believe that a member of the killer's family or an acquaintance knows what happened. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our episode. Linda's family is satisfied that the police have done all they can do, but they still worry that her murderer will strike again, inflicting on others the unbearable pain that they feel. But it sounds like they've made some sort of peace with her passing and even the person that caused it. Her sister Janet is quoted in saying, One of the things I have learned through the years is that when I pray, I have to bless this person too. If I don't forgive him, I walk around with the weight of it for the rest of my life. As I sit with this comment, I wonder if I could do this. I wonder if you think you could too. I agree with her comment. And I've always said that forgiveness is a gift to yourself, not the individuals you're forgiving, because hate weighs heavy on your soul and your heart. But still, if my brother were murdered, I wonder if I would be strong enough to do this without answers or justice. I would hope that I would be, but I just don't know. So before we get into any theories of who might be responsible for Linda's murder, I want to share a couple of interesting stories that I found her friend Charlotte, her husband Larry, and her sister Janet shared with reporters. These are interesting stories because of the timing of them and when they occurred. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you all know that I am very much in tune with synchronicities. I pay attention to the universe and I pay attention to messages. So I thought I'd share these. Linda's sister Janet dreamed about a murderer lurking on a rocky beach two weeks before she was killed. She was actually quoted in saying the whole thing about the dream was that our family could not see the murderer. He kept going around the corner every time we got close. I'm sure this dream haunts Janet and it stuck with her over the years. I do firmly believe that this was a bit of a premonition though. And the fact that they couldn't see him and he kept hiding out of sight in the dream speaks to the difficulty of being able to determine who the killer was. I don't know if anyone in the family thinks this case will ever be solved. And I certainly don't want to say that they're okay with that. But I do think that they've come to terms with that. Larry, her husband, had a conversation with Linda before she was murdered about reading that someone was murdered and was bludgeoned to death. He recalls that they talked about what must be going on in the person's family I think this story helps to speak to the type of compassionate person Linda was. It's also a bit eerie that this other person was murdered and bludgeoned, just like Linda was. And then 
the night before Linda died, she and her friend Charlotte, that she was staying with for her visit, went for a long walk. Charlotte explained that Linda had a close friend whose daughter and son-in-law had been killed in an accident. And Charlotte remembered Linda talking about the uncertainty of life and how we must live for the moment. She stated that we are remembered by the good that we do. The timing of this conversation is just so eerie. Linda truly believed that you are remembered by the good that you do, and she really embodied that. She was a really compassionate person. So now we can circle back to some possible suspects. So the suspect that investigators focused on was a Middletown man with a history of exposing himself. But the police have not been able to make any arrest because there is no evidence. I couldn't find a name as I was digging for the suspect. And I don't believe the name was ever made public. Another person that was investigated but never named as a suspect was convicted murderer Harold Meade. Now, that name may sound familiar to some of you, especially if you're in the Connecticut area, because he was sentenced to three consecutive life terms in prison after being found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. This monster bludgeoned three young, mentally handicapped persons to death in 1969. Harold took these victims to a wooded area and beat them to death with rocks after they had taken a walk in a park in New Haven, Connecticut. Those victims were William White, who was 20 at the time, Sandra Hedler, 15, and Donna Schilter, 23. They were found dead behind a ventilator shaft of West Rock Tunnel. And now when found, William White was actually still alive. He was taken to the hospital, but ended up dying 17 days later. Now, Harold Meade was sentenced in 1972 for these three horrific murders. So you may be asking yourself, why was he investigated for Linda's murder? He was in jail. It's a great question, too. And the answer may shock you a bit, as it kind of shocked me too. A pre-1995 furlough policy permitted inmates to be released to a sponsor for 24 to 72 hours. Over the span of 13 years, Harold Meade got 184 one-day furloughs and 68 weekend furloughs. Yep, that's right. Out of prison for a break, I guess you could say. During his furloughs, he met and married his second wife. And to celebrate their second anniversary, Harold rented a cabin near Himanasset Beach on the weekend that Linda was killed. Investigators weren't able to come up with evidence linking him to Linda's death. It's important to note, though, that he was never granted another furlough. The policy ended up changing. 
Harold did deny being responsible for Linda's death, as well as four other child murders that occurred around the area that he's commonly referred to in conversation about. Those were the deaths of Diane Tooney, age 11, Mary Mount, age 10, Don Cave, age 14, and Jennifer Noon, just five. Harold only claimed responsibility for the three deaths he was charged with and died in prison December 9th, 2007. So without any remaining DNA evidence, police would be relying on people coming forward with information. So one of the ways the state of Connecticut was thinking outside the box to bring information forward about cold cases was by issuing something called cold case playing cards. Linda's case was featured in one of these decks of these cold case playing cards. They're available for purchase by inmates in facilities operated by the Department of Correction, and revenue from the card sales is used to produce more decks of cards, making the project self-sufficient. The cards were produced by the cold case unit in the office of the chief state's attorney, along with the Department of Correction and other law enforcement groups, working to solve cases that have gone cold or have been unsolved for a prolonged period of time. Each of these cards features a photograph, brief details about the case, along with telephone, mail, and email contacts that the inmates can use to supply information. The cases featured on the cards are changed in each deck to allow for maximum number of cases to be circulated through the correctional system. Since the cards were released in 2010, investigators have received more than 470 tips. And since the first two editions were distributed, arrests have been made in nine homicide cases featured on the cards. In researching this case, this is the first time that I've heard of these cards, and I believe a few other states have them implemented as well. I personally think it's a great idea to generate leads on otherwise cold cases with little information. I also think it's important to note that I didn't have any sort of updated statistics, so those statistics about the tips and the arrests are fairly old, at least 10 years. Linda Rayner's closest friends and relatives still visit Hammonasset to retrace her final steps. Linda's parents noticed the first time they visited the spot where Linda was found that two veins on a rock intersected to form a cross. It was thought that it was an appropriate sign for a woman described as being so deeply spiritual. I do hope for Linda's family's sake that new information does come forward in this case. If you know anything, any little piece of information, please call Connecticut Cold Case Unit at 866 866- 623-8058 or email cold.case at ct.gov.
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.